Hello everyone and welcome back uh, for our week three uh, lecture, uh, this or briefing, sorry, on rationality in public policy. I hope everyone's enjoying the course so far uh, and uh, you're ready to go and talk about uh, yet another topic that sounds like it should be incredibly boring but is actually super interesting. Uh, I'm going to apologize starting off. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, this won't make much sense. But for those of you watching at home, uh, I'm going to apologize for the state of my hair. Uh, we are currently, as I record this, uh, still in the 28-day lockdown. Uh, so I have not been able to get a haircut and it's starting to get out of hand. So I apologize for that. But let's, uh, let's move on. So throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we've heard a lot about evidence-based policy. And actually, we probably heard a lot about it before. Uh, earlier this winter, when defending the government's actions to combat the COVID-19 pandemic, Premier Doug Ford said that the policies were informed by data, evidence, and information, including from other jurisdictions, and approved by cabinet. Yet while leaders across the world uh, at the moment are all paying homage to scientific evidence in their speeches, we've seen a variety of different policy responses to COVID-19. Um, from the laissez-faire attitude of some American states uh, to the incredibly strict and some might argue draconian uh, lockdowns adopted in some East Asian countries, uh, especially the province of Wuhan, for example. While few would object to the idea of policies being based on the best available evidence, the paradigm of evidence-based policy making leaves many questions unanswered. Is policymaking simply the rational evaluation of the available evidence? If that's the case, then why do intelligent people so often disagree on policy? What role do values, morality, ethics, and power play in the policymaking process? These are the questions that we're going to discuss this week as we delve deep into the idea of evidence, rationality, and even you know the concept of science as we know it. All right, so what are our learning outcomes for today? By the end of this uh, week's lesson, uh, this briefing, you should be able to explain the key concepts for the week. So our key concepts this week are bounded rationality, incrementalism, narrative, and social construction. Uh, it seems like a lot, but we're going to break them down uh, so that they're nice and easy. Uh, so the second learning outcome, you should be able to understand the strengths and limitations of evidence-based policymaking and the role that narrative and emotion play in public policy. And finally, you should be able to apply the key terms from this week to better understand a policy issue of your choice. Uh, because if you look at the final paper outline or the paper proposal guidelines, which are posted on the Brightspace page, uh, you'll see that concepts like bounded rationality and narrative uh, are you know, concepts that you can use to write your final paper. So they're important to learn. All right, so part one, what the heck are policymakers thinking? I know this is a question uh, that we're often asking when we see the policies that, that get you know thought up these days. Um, and today we're going to look a little bit into the psychology of policymaking uh, to understand whether or not policymakers are indeed rational. But first I want to clarify a couple of points. Um, professors uh, in political science and, and professors in generally have a very bad habit and that's the habit of talking in disciplinary jargon. Jargon means uh, language that's sort of specific to a, a certain group of people. 
So for example, if you've ever done a placement in the federal government or you're going to work in the federal government, you'll notice that government workers have a bad habit of talking in TLAs, three-letter acronyms. Um, but professors have the same bad habit. We often use uh, language that we understand because we're, we're so far down the rabbit hole, but that's not always clear to students. So that's why I want to make a special effort to step back and make sure we're all uh, on the same page with the key terms that, that are coming up a lot in the course. So we talk a lot about actors and policymakers in the course, but what do these terms mean? First of all, let's clarify the term actor. Uh, so when we talk about the term actor in political science or public policy, we're not talking about, you know, movie actors like Jennifer Lawrence. Within the context of this course, Jennifer Lawrence is not an actor. Uh, unless that is, she's engaged in some sort of political advocacy or decides to run for Congress or Senate. Actors refer to people and organizations in politics that do something. An actor can be a politician, an ordinary citizen, or an advocacy group, but they have to be doing something that's relevant to policy. So that's what we mean when we're using the term actor. When we talk about policy policymakers, on the other hand, we're generally talking about people that are directly involved in the formal policy process. So as, we're gonna, as we learned about last week, sorry, the policy process is very complex and putting boundaries around it or trying to fit it into a neat little model is sometimes kind of tricky. Generally though, politicians, civil servants, key advisors or decision makers are thought to be policymakers. So that's what we mean when we're talking about a policymaker. So Justin Trudeau, for example, pictured here looking very dashing with his salt and pepper beard uh, is an example of an actor and a policymaker. Once again, Jennifer Lawrence, within the context of this course, not an actor. All right, so how do policymakers think? Um, if our question today is, you know, is policymaking rational? Is it evidence-based? We have to understand how policymakers think, how they evaluate evidence, uh, how they weigh the costs and benefits of certain policies. So our focus this week is thus going to be getting inside of policymakers' heads. As a result, we have to use a little bit of psychology. So traditionally, political scientists argued that policymakers acted rationally. So they weighed the costs and benefits of a decision before going ahead with it. As the field of political science has developed, however, we began to incorporate lessons from other disciplines like psychology, and we realized that the situation is actually a lot more complicated than simple, you know, rational thinking. Policymakers, like you and I, uh, face a tremendous amount of information in our daily lives, right? Every day, think of the amount of information that you're bombarded with, that your brain has to process at any given time. Sights, sounds, smells, tweets. There's simply too much for your brain to properly consider everything out there. So our brains use little tricks. Uh, we sometimes call these heuristics. They're thinking shortcuts um, or mental shortcuts that help us make sense of our complex world. Theory is a, a mental shortcut, for example. It's a heuristic. It allows us to identify factors that are relevant to the topic that we want to talk about and to sort of set aside factors that we think we can safely ignore. These heuristics, though, uh, while sometimes useful, leave us open to things called cognitive biases. So cognitive biases are, are bad shortcuts in, mental in, our, in the way that we think. So in many ways, unfortunately, these cognitive biases are unavoidable. Um, our brains just default to this behavior because there's simply too much information. We can't take it all in. Um, we need shortcuts in order to be able to survive mentally. If we didn't use shortcuts in our mental processing, we would just be constantly exhausted from the amount of information that our brain is being asked to process. Um, 
but we can these biases can be harmful to the way that we think um, so we can try to limit them uh, as much as possible and the way that we impact the way that we see policy issues so let's look at an example of a cognitive bias uh, as you see on the slide here there's a couple that i've listed so stereotyping confirmation bias the bandwagon effect uh, let's talk about confirmation bias so this refers to the tendency within the human mind to focus on information that fits with our worldview and reject information that goes against it. So I'm going to talk about my best friend, Nathan, because uh, he's a fantastic example of this. So Nathan's a die-hard Toronto Maple Leafs fan. Every year he sends me articles about how this year is going to be different. This year is going to be the year that the Toronto Maple Leafs are going to win the Stanley Cup. And every year he's disappointed. This might be because he naturally gravitates towards articles that say good things about the Maple Leafs and ignores articles that criticize them. Confirmation, confirmation bias is also a huge reason uh, behind a phenomenon that we're seeing more and more in the internet age, uh, which is social media bubbles, right? Uh, we live in, the, in our curated social media environment. We generally have friends that share our worldview, um, and then they, you know, when they're going on the news, uh, first of all, they'll gravitate towards news sites that they like. Um, so if you're a more left-leaning person, you probably like things like the Huffington Post. Um, if you're a more right-leaning person, you might like the National Post or Fox News, uh, something like that. Um, so you'll sort of naturally gravitate towards those uh, news sources because they make us feel good, right? They, they put out information that fits with our existing worldview. Um, and then we exist in this social media ecosystem with people that share that view. They share articles that we, we agree with. Um, and then we sort of, our natural worldview is reinforced. We don't challenge it. Um, and that's a, a big reason behind a lot of the polarization, I think, that we're seeing these days. So hopefully now we understand uh, heuristics and, and cognitive biases. They're different types of mental shortcuts. So heuristic is just sort of a general term for mental shortcuts. Cognitive biases is generally a term for mental shortcuts that are harmful, right? Our brains, too much information to take in, so we use these mental shortcuts to try to make sense of the world. And policymakers do that too. That's what's most relevant for our lecture. Um, it's interesting to think about how our brains do it, um, but most relevant for public policy is looking at how policymakers use these heuristics as well. So let's look at, at two more examples. Uh, the first one is the cultural theory of risk. So this is a theory that comes from two authors, Kahan and Brahman. They published an article about it in 2003 that's really interesting. Um, and it talks about how we perceive risk. Uh, the way that we perceive risk is shaped by our culture, culture and our morals. So human beings tend to think we approach risk logically, right? Um, if you think about risks that you take in your own life, uh, so for example, choosing to drive somewhere, right? Um, you, we think that we weigh the costs and benefits of potentially risky activities before engaging in it. Rock climbing is another example, right? We think like, okay, rock climbing, you know, it's mostly safe. I'm wearing a harness. I'm probably not going to hurt myself. So it's logical that the, the enjoyment and exercise that I get out of rock climbing outweighs the potential danger of falling or hurting myself. Um, but risk assessment and risk assessment is also a big part of modern public policy. So, for example, the COVID pandemic uh, shows us uh, it, it, the COVID pandemic is essentially a giant activity of, of risk assessment. Um, so it involves a lot of risk management. So balancing the risk of spreading the virus versus the risks of uh, economic damage, mental health, the destruction of small businesses. Right. What policymakers are constantly balancing these risks to try to figure out what's the best uh, option at the moment. 
So what Kahan and Brahman argue, however, is that how we perceive risk is shaped by culture. They argue that people's moral attitudes and cultural backgrounds have a big impact on how they perceive risk. So they note that people are more likely to see an activity as risky if they also believe that that activity is immoral or deviant. Kahn and Brahman apply this theory to gun control policy. So they argue that people who see gun control, or sorry, people that see gun ownership as a normal part of life. So for example, if you live in a rural area, if you come from a hunting household, you're more likely to see gun ownership as an acceptable risk uh, or as less risky. Um, so people who do not see gun ownership as normal, so generally people who live in cities, maybe people who come from more uh, left-leaning households, are more likely to see gun, gun ownership as an unacceptable risk. This helps to explain why so many people and policymakers are unconvinced by appeals to statistics and facts when it comes to the gun debate. So they read this information, this, this logical sort of statistics, facts, scientific information, they read it through their own cultural worldview. Um, and, and thus the way they interpret it is different. That's why, you know, two different policymakers or two different people can look at the same information and come up with completely different conclusions. Um, and I just have an example here uh, with regards to gun ownership. Uh, so this is uh, Pania Tapajo, Tapajo. I apologize for my massacring of that name. Um, and she's an indigenous Maori, Maori woman from New Zealand. Uh, she leads economically disenfranchised indigenous women on hunts to help feed their family. And you'll notice right here, uh, she's holding a bolt action 308 rifle, uh, which is actually suppressed. That's a that's what uh, some of you might know as a silencer, uh, which are perfectly legal for hunting in a lot of countries like New Zealand and Australia and, and uh, some European countries. Um, and so obviously someone like this who hunts for uh, for literally for a living and who leads uh, other women in hunts um, sees gun ownership as completely normal um, and will look at the evidence on gun ownership differently as someone who grew up in the city and doesn't know anyone who owns a gun. Um, and so that's that's what they mean by the cultural theory of risk. So our, our cultural and our moral worldview shapes which activities we perceive as risky or not risky. And that's another example of how, you know, we might think that we're perfectly rational, uh, perfectly rational uh, thinkers and actors, when in reality, um, our morals, our ethics, and our emotions often have a lot more to do with how we make decisions than we think. All right, let's look at another example, conspiracy theories. This is a fun one. Uh, so the human mind has a need for coherence. We need the world to make sense. Um, and often the problem is the world doesn't make sense. It's fundamentally chaotic. Um, so what happens when our brains that need things to make sense encounter a world that doesn't make sense? Well, our brains then look for patterns, right? We like to see patterns in the world and recognizing patterns actually gives us a hit of dopamine, um, one of the chemicals that's related to pleasure, right? So that's why people like to do puzzles um, or like to, you know, look for, for different patterns uh, in the world. Um, it actually gives us, uh, our, it gives our brains chemical pleasure. Human beings also feel the need to be in control, right? Being out of control feels scary. Um, we want to we want to feel like we have control over the world and, and recognizing these patterns is one way that we do this. So this creates the perfect underlying uh, the perfect underlying conditions for conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories are attractive because they provide a sense of cohesion to the world. They often follow simple narratives uh, with common villains, um, and they also paradoxically make us feel in control of our destiny. 
When you believe in a conspiracy theory, you feel like you're one of the few people that know the truth, right? You are in control. This is why conspiracy theories tend to pop up during times when people feel particularly insecure. Uh, so for example, we can think of the numerous conspiracy theories uh, surrounding the current pandemic or the 9-11 truther conspiracy, which circulated widely during the war on terror. These conspiracy theories help us recognize supposed patterns in the world uh, and make us feel safe and in control of our environment, when in reality, we're not in control at all. Sorry. All right, so now that we know that policymakers, like other human beings, have limited cognition and use heuristics and cognitive biases and cultural or more more our, our culture or morality to navigate the world we now need to go back to our original question is policy rational so the answer is yes and no and it depends how we define rationality this is a big trick in political science right uh, how we define something often influences quite a bit so we got to be careful when people are defining things so we're going to look at two competing definitions of rationality to understand how policymaking is both rational and irrational. So the first one is, is perfect or ideal rationality. This is what the textbook refers to as comprehensive rationality. And it's how scholars used to look at rationality and public policy. So this view of rationality assumes that, assumed that policymakers had goals or values that they wanted to implement policies to achieve and would use rational means to achieve those goals. Um, there are five keys ass key assumptions built into this view uh, that scholars have poked holes in. So the first one is that policymakers and organizations are able to separate values, which are used to identify goals, and facts, which are used to achieve those goals. That organizations can have consistent policy preferences. That policy follows uh, the cycle model. It happens in a linear way. And that government organizations and policymakers have the ability to analyze all the relevant factors and information. This is called comprehensive decision-making. So this idea was first criticized by Herbert Simon, and he instead came up with a more realistic definition of rationality, bounded rationality. So it looks at how policymakers make decisions, um, but it has a very different set of underlying assumptions. So the underlying assumptions of bounded rationality are that it's impossible, first of all, to fully separate facts from values. That's because our values shape the facts we pay attention to, or even how we see facts that are well-established. So we can think back to uh, our, the previous slides um, and you know the cultural theory of risk, for example, to see how our values and our morals influence how we interpret facts. The second core assumption is that policymakers have a number of goals, but these goals may not be entirely clear. They usually choose to pursue only a few issues at a time, um, and the issues that they act on are not always decided by them. I don't think that the Trudeau government or the Ford government or any government, for example, wanted to deal with COVID-19, but they didn't have a choice. Uh, the third assumption is that the policy cycle is not linear. It's more complicated, right? We looked at that last week. The assumptions of the policy cycle don't always, um, don't always pan out. It's actually a bit more co complicated than uh, they originally thought. And the final assumption is that uh, policymakers don't always have all the knowledge all the time, and they can't always think about all of the different options. Um, this is another good way, uh, if we think about the COVID-19 response in March of 2020, right? Policymakers had a lot less information to base their decision-making on than they do now. Um, and as a result, uh, they made some mistakes, 
like uh, closing public spaces, outdoor spaces like parks, which we now know pose a very small risk for COVID-19 transmission. So basically, uh, the, the key points of bounded rationality is that policymakers try to act rationally, but they can only act rationally within the limits of human and organizational cognition. They're still people. We are tempted to think nowadays with all of the access to information that we have that we can overcome the problems of bounded rationality, right? We just can plug all the information into a computer, bloop, 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 and it's all solved. Um, in reality, though, uh, though we have access to more information than ever, we're going to see throughout the course that government decisions are still plagued by the same foibles as our ancestors. We haven't been able to overcome the problems of bounded rationality. All right. So how does bounded rationality influence the policy process? Uh, let's look at one example, um, incremental versus radical change. So when we think about change in policy, we often think about or desire radical change. We want to defund the police. We want to eliminate poverty. We want to decolonize Canada. We want to eliminate the public debt. This is normal given that many of the problems that we're facing at the moment, uh, like systemic racism or economic inequality, are both dire, immediate, and heartbreaking. But does radical change happen in public policy? Is it even desirable in the long run? In reality, policies usually change incrementally in Western democracies. This is because policymakers are, not off, are often not completely free to do what they wish, right? They're operating within the limits of bounded rationality. Even if they did want to pursue radical policy change, they have to think about whether they have the votes or the support uh, to achieve that, whether they can get their party behind them uh, in a minority government, whether they can get the members of the opposition uh, to agree. Um, even if the legislation passes, will it be able to survive uh, the challenges from different institutions like the court system? And uh, will it anger relevant interest groups that will then you know, pull their support or their money from the party? Also, policymakers often end up having to deal with problems from previous policies, which take up a lot of their time and energy, or even problems that they didn't expect to face, uh, like once again, like a pandemic or a terrorist attack. It's important to know uh, that incremental change doesn't necessarily mean small. It just means that uh, policies governments pursue will generally follow logically from existing policies. Radical policies, uh, so major departures from existing, existing policies, are rare, though they do sometimes happen. So, right, incrementalism doesn't necessarily mean slow change. It usually does mean slow change, but it just means that policies proceed logically from other policies. So is this a good thing, right? That depends. Uh, on the one hand, it means change in demo democratic systems can often happen slowly and much slower than we'd like. This can be very frustrating, and especially so for marginalized people who often suffer the consequences of bad policies that we really want to change. On the other hand, it generally makes systems more stable. Radical change is not always good change, as the 20th century taught us. Incremental change involves compromise between competing interests. It means that more people have a seat at the table and more people have representation. Um, so incremental change can sometimes be a good thing. On the other hand, when does radical change happen? Um, if incremental change refers to policies that build logically on other policies, uh, like a staircase, when does radical change happen, like a slide? 
When do policymakers go off the well-beaten path and make unprecedented shifts in public policy? Well, this does happen rarely, but there are a few times where it does happen. Uh, one theoretical perspective that we can look to to understand this is the multiple streams framework. We're going to look more at the multiple streams framework later on, um, but let's look at one of the key concepts from the multiple, stream, stream, multiple streams framework, sorry, um, which is this idea of policy windows. So the multiple streams framework argues that policy change happens radically when a policy window opens up. What does that mean? Uh, so policy windows refer to windows of opportunity for certain policies that are opened uh, because of a number of reasons. The most common is what is called a focusing event. This is when something outside of the government's control happens that draws attention to a certain policy. These events usually happen quickly, are rare, large scale, and force policymakers to react. Uh, so we can think of, for example, of the uh, Fukushima nuclear disaster that happened in Japan in 2011. This was a major event. It was outside of the control of policymakers. It happened because of a natural disaster. Um, and it saw a huge movement um, emerge to try to fight back against nuclear policy in Japan. Another example of a focusing event uh, is a mass shooting. So we can think about the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand in 2019, which caused the government of Jacinda Ardern to radically change New Zealand's gun laws. This event drew attention to the issue of firearms policy and led to public pressure for the government to act. In fact, all of the policy, uh, all of the parties in New Zealand were forced to sort of get on board with this policy because they didn't want to be seen as soft on guns because the focusing event was so dramatic, um, so awful, uh, that it really forced policymakers' hands. So that being says, what counts as radical change and what counts as incremental change can be up for a debate. It's not always clear if a policy change is radical or incremental. In many cases, this may, may be in the eye of the beholder. To a conservative, for example, a universal basic income would be a radical change. To a communist, it would be a modern, moderate change. So all of these terms are, are, are a little bit relative. But as we can see, radical change does sometimes happen in public policy. All right, so let's look at an example of incrementalism in action. Um, so will we defund the police? Um, if we come back to this question of will Canada, the United States, defund the police, it leaves us with two possibilities. So the first is that uh, Canada and the U.S. Uh, might employ an incrementalist approach. So we can see this happen in a number of cities who are taking uh, steps to reform their police departments by making changes to the way that officers are trained, by mandating things like body cameras, etc. These are sort of uh, somewhat logical steps from existing government policies, um, and they're very incremental small changes that leave a lot of activists unhappy, right? We want to see big changes. People are dying. Um, some police, office, uh, police departments, however, have adopted more radical changes. So prompted by the focusing event of George, Flo George Floyd's murder this summer, or the shooting of Breonna Taylor, um, a lot of police departments are actually enacting more radical changes. So, for example, Seattle cut the police budget by 20% this year. Um, though it might be open debate whether this debates whether this represents a radical shift in policing or an incremental change, uh, it definitely seems fairly radical to cut your budget by 20%. Um, so that leaves us the question, will we defund the police? Um, well, as we can see, police departments are, in North America are adopting both incrementalist and radical changes. 
Um, and this leads us to, uh, it open to debate about whether we will or will not defund the police. Um, maybe we will, maybe we won't. Uh, that remains to be seen. Um, but we now have two key concepts that we can use to analyze that change when it does happen. All right, let's take a quick break, uh, grab a coffee, grab a biscuit, and we'll, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about uh, narrative and emotion and the role that they play in the policy process, given what we now know about bounded rationality, uh, heuristics, and cognitive biases. See you soon. Hey, 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 welcome back, everybody. All right, so in part one uh, of the class, we talked about the concept of bounded rationality. We talked about how it's different from comprehensive rationality. Uh, and we talked about uh, incrementalism and radical change. Uh, so if you're still unfamiliar with any of those concepts, please go back. Uh, if you're, you're watching, go back to the previous video. If you're listening in the podcast, scroll back and just make sure you're really familiar with those concepts because they are going to be super important moving forward. Um, if you're familiar with those concepts, if you understand a little bit what they mean, uh, you feel pretty comfortable with them. Let's move on to part two. Um, part two, I've called it how to, how to manipulate people into doing what you want. Uh, that's not um, necessarily a very good thing to do, but it is what policy actors do. Politics sometimes can be a dirty game and uh, sometimes people play dirty. So we're going to learn a little bit about how policymakers take advantage of bounded rationality and the fact that people often process, as we know the world, uh, through heuristics and through cognitive biases. And we're gonna look at how those can be manipulated in order to win friends and influence people. Um, it's going to be very interesting and very exciting, especially for those of you looking to go into politics. Uh, this will help you be very Machiavellian, if that's the case. All right, so first let's talk about framing. So we've established in the first half of the course that policymakers and ordinary people operate under the conditions of bounded rationality. We do what we think is reasonable, but what we think is reasonable is limited by our ability to process information. So we rely on heuristics and cognitive biases that can force us to make mistakes. The theories of incrementalism focused on how this impacts policymakers' decision-making ability Right, policymakers we know generally implement policies that follow logically from other policies. We can also look at how this impacts ordinary people and how people make decisions in democracies. So bounded rationality tells us that human beings are susceptible to manipulation, though this susceptibility is not necessarily unlimited. There are a few tools that policymakers or advocates can use to try to shift the way that people see different issues especially to shift the way that people see different issues to serve their purposes. So the first is frames and the concept of framing. Framing involves presenting an issue in a certain way uh, in order to, uh, sorry, framing involves presenting an issue in a certain way in order to influence the way that it's interpreted by the audience and limit the possible solutions to the problem. Just like an artist puts a frame around a painting to sort of establish the clear boundaries of that painting, uh, policymakers and advocates place frames around issues in order to subtly influence the way that people see them. A good example from my own research, um, we can think about the concept of an assault weapon. You often hear in debates, why does anyone need an assault weapon? Here, the legality of so-called assault weapons is framed around need, rather than whether or not these firearms pose a particular danger to the public. 
This is a test that most things in society would fail. Does anyone really need a dryer? Despite the fact that dryers use up a lot of energy and, and end up harming the environment, right? So this is a way, uh, whether or not you agree with banning assault weapons, this is a way that advocates can place a frame around an issue uh, in order to influence the message that people take from it. On the other side, we can think of the frame, the only thing that stops a good guy with a gun, a bad guy with a gun, sorry, is a good guy with a gun. This frame tries to influence the audience to accept the idea that people should be able to carry guns in public in order to stop these supposed bad guys. It does not address how often the good guys with a gun are ordinary people versus police officers, or what happens when a good guy with a gun becomes a bad guy with a gun. It just uh, places a boundary around that issue and tries to influence the way the message that people take from it. Let's look at another example from another policy issue. Uh, so we know uh, this winter, Argentina recently legalized abortion. Um, and in the, on the issue of abortion, we see a lot of, of framing being used by both sides. Um, so pro-choice advocates frame abortion around bodily autonomy and a woman's right to choose. Pro-life advocates, on the other hand, frame abortion around the life of the fetus, which they refer to as a baby. Uh, even the names for both of these movements are framing exercises, right? Are you pro-choice? Are you pro-life? Uh, you know, very people, few people adopt the, the moniker of, you know, pro-abortion. Instead, you're pro-choice, right? So these are, are ways of presenting an issue in a way um, that influences the way, the meanings that people will take from it uh, in order to win people over to your cause. Right? For example, if, uh, for example, uh, oftentimes movements will try to use counter frames to label other movements. So the, the pro-life movement often tries to label the pro-choice movement as pro-death or something like that, because you know no one would join the pro-death movement unless you're like some sort of goth rocker or something like that. But uh, yes, yeah, so we can see these naming practices, these framing practices are a way of influencing the meanings that people take from things in the world. Another tactic uh, that policymakers and advocacy groups often use um, in order to influence the meaning that people take from things is narrative. Um, so narrative is a fancy way of saying storytelling, and it's used to try to sway audiences to support a certain cause or policy solution. These stories are generally crafted to make sure that they fit with the existing belief systems of their target audience. Remember, bounded rationality means uh, that people will generally tend to reject information that doesn't fit with their worldview. So crafting a narrative that fits with your audience's worldview is really important if you want them to change their mind on something. The narrative policy framework is a theory that tries to explain how this is done. To count as a narrative, a story must have four characteristics. A setting, it has to take place somewhere. Characters, these are usually heroes, villains, and often victims. A plot, right, a clear story arc with a beginning, middle and an end. Um, and finally, a moral. And this moral is usually expressed as a policy solution. Um, so this is the idea that the, the storyteller wants you to take from their story. So these stories are, are particularly effective when, number one, they chime with an audience's fundamental beliefs. Um, two, they use these heroes and victims because people sort of naturally want to empathize with victims and they naturally want to associate with heroes. Uh, they make policy problems relatable, right? Often policy problems are complex, they're technical, they're boring. So if you can turn it into a story that sounds exciting, more people will get involved, they'll get excited about it, and they'll be motivated to act. And finally, um, stories are effective when they exploit trust in the narrator. So what this means is that if you're hearing a policy story from someone that you trust, 
you're more likely to accept it than from someone that you don't trust. Uh, if you are a conservative party member and you hear Justin Trudeau tell a story, you're very likely to reject that story. Conversely, if you are a hardcore uh, someone in the NDP, for example, and you hear uh, Aaron O'Toole tell a story, you're probably not going to take it very seriously as well. You have to trust the narrator. So uh, some examples from the world of, of politics and academia. Um, researchers in the United States, actually, uh, there's a, a sort of a new research method where they'll look through Twitter. Um, and they'll look through Twitter to see how politicians uh, use their tweets to tell stories and influence people's uh, position on certain policy issues. So it's a really interesting area of research that's emerging. emerging. Sorry, the second I sit down to record these things, I forget how to speak. All right, uh, let's look at an example. Um, so uh, most of you are probably familiar with Greta Thunberg. Uh, she's a young climate activist uh, from Scandinavia. Um, and she uh, has spoken in front of the UN uh, to try to influence more people to get involved fighting climate change. Um, and let's listen to a story that she tells. So I'm going to read directly from her speech. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all that you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? You say that you hear us and that you understand the urgency, but no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil, and I refuse to believe that. So wow. Um, whatever you think of, of uh, Greta Thunberg, very, very powerful speaker. And uh, this is a, a really, really good example of good speech writing. Um, which, uh, for those of you who are choosing to write a speech for your choose your own assignment, this might be something to read through as a model. Um, but let's think about the story that, that uh, Greta Thunberg is telling with this uh, these narrative, right? So she's talking about, uh, do we have uh, a, a setting? So we have the setting is, is the United Nations, right? Because she's talking to these, uh, these world leaders. Um, the setting in many ways is, is the world. Um, she creates uh, victims, right? She talks about the victims of climate change. People are suffering. People are dying. Ecosystems are collapsing. So the victims don't necessarily have to be people. They can be, be uh, animals in this case uh, or, or the earth. Um, and the villains in this, this is sort of a unique narrative because she's sort of talking directly to the villains of the story. In many ways, the, the UN actors that she's talking to are the villains of her story because they're causing this climate change. Um, if not, maybe on purpose, she's sort of very cleverly suggesting that, you know, you're probably not doing this on purpose. You probably just don't realize how, uh, how bad the situation is. Um, so we use her, see her using that rhetorical device. And obviously the moral that we're meant to take away from this story uh, is the idea that we need to urgently fight climate change, um, which is what she's an activist for. Uh, so a really, really good example of storytelling. Some other examples. Um, this is from my own research, uh, so I don't know if I mentioned this before, uh, but my dissertation is about the National Rifle Association of America, and I actually use the narrative policy framework in my dissertation uh, to describe how the NRA uses storytelling uh, to build a political community of gun owners and to influence the way that Americans see their own past uh, and thus the gun issue. Uh, so for those of you who aren't familiar, the NRA is a, uh, a lobby organization um, for guns in the United States. They're very, very powerful, um, and we often hear about them uh, after a mass shooting. 
um, and they're sort of presented by the media as the key obstacle uh, to achieving gun control in the United States. Uh, the truth is actually a little bit more complex, but um, they are a really, really powerful actor, uh, and they often use storytelling uh, as part of their strategy. Uh, so these narratives as part of their strategy to win over supporters. Um, so for example, uh, I went to the NRA convention. I did three months of field work in the United States in the summer of 2019. Uh, so this involved what field work is or participant observation is where you actually go and live with the people that you're studying and try to get a better idea of their worldview and how everything works on the ground. So I went to the NRA convention uh, and as part of the NRA convention, they have these speeches and they had uh, three speakers uh, who are all so-called good guys and good gals with guns. Um, and these speakers told their stories of defending themselves uh, and innocent people with a firearm. So I don't know if any of you heard of the Sutherland Springs church shooting. Um, it happened a couple of years ago uh, and it, a guy, guy with an AR-15 went to a church in Texas um, and shot uh, and killed an, a number of people. Um, but he was actually eventually stopped by an armed citizen uh, using their own AR-15 um, and they, he took out the shooter. Uh, so they had this gentleman, uh, Stephen Williford, uh, come up and tell his story about uh, killing the, the Sutherland Spring shooting uh, church shooter and talking about using his AR-15 as a good guy with a gun. Um, and I could see uh, from in the audience that these policy narratives were incredibly effective at mobilizing the crowd, getting people excited, right? Um, they worked because they uh, jived with people's beliefs, right? Um, so for someone who went to the convention and... Uh, was, you know, very, very anti-gun, um, would have heard the same speeches and probably thought it was ridiculous. Uh, but because these audiences' core beliefs, they were primed uh, to identify with these stories, um, it got people very, very excited. Uh, and you could see how these stories were used as a way for the NRA to motivate their supporters and try to get them to become more involved with the organization. All right, so uh, we, as we saw in the textbook, um, on top of framing and narrative, uh, there are other ways uh, that emotion and uh, and and uh, and oh shoot, I'm blanking on this. Two seconds. Sorry, that emotion and bounded rationality. I found it uh, influence the way that policymakers shape issues and people end up voting. So the, the uh, social construction and policy design is a theoretical perspective uh, that tries to look at how emotion influences public policy. This theoretical perspective describes the way that politicians make value judgments about groups in society that either deserve government support or groups that the government decides to vilify and say that they don't deserve government support. When selecting these groups, policymakers generally make quick, biased, emotional judgments then seek to back up these judgments with selective facts. Sometimes, however, these constructions are the products of strategic exploitation. So this is similar to state scapegoating. Um, politicians use these social constructions uh, to help them win support, or at least to avoid political risk by going against the prevailing values of society. These values then become solidified in policy designs, and the social constructions can be challenged, but they're really, really difficult to shift and change. Uh, so an example of these social constructions, the textbook gives the example of neoliberal anti-welfare policies, uh, which were used to sort of shame welfare recipients to make them seem unworthy of government support so that the government could justify cutting back welfare support. Uh, but we're going to talk about a few of my own examples um, 
to sort of make this a little bit more clear because I know after reading the textbook, the concept isn't entirely clear. So another example of a social construction uh, within a policy design uh, are uh, the war on drugs and, and the paradigm shift that's happened um, towards safe injection sites. Uh, so the war on drugs started in the 1970s um, and it's arguably gone on until the present. Um, within sort of the war on drugs framework, uh, this happened in the 70s because uh, drugs like cocaine uh, were starting to make their way into the US market and to Canada. Um, and the government's response uh, to the cocaine epidemic, uh, lots of people started using it, uh, lots of people started using other hard drugs, um, was to try to fight back against this uh, using sort of a militarized police uh, ideal rather than like by framing the issue in sort of a, a policing and, and law and order framework rather than as a health issue, which we would think about it right now as. So drug users were framed by politicians as morally bankrupt, right? Uh, this is where we saw, you can see on the screen here, this is Nancy Reagan, uh, Ronald Reagan's wife. Um, and she is at a football game, uh, sort of promoting her Just Say No ad campaign. So this was her idea that, you know, just say no to drugs, don't do drugs. Um, and as I said, drug users were made to look like uh, morally bankrupt, morally fallen individuals, um, not, you know, people who had made mistakes and become addicted. Uh, drug use was heavily criminalized. Um, and as we uh, can see looking back at the statistics, um, this usually meant that uh, racialized minorities uh, were sort of the most heavily criminalized of the bunch. Uh, that's because if you're wealthy and white, uh, you could take cocaine uh, in your house um, or you know you had a, a large house, you would do it at private parties, the police were less likely to interfere. Um, if you were a uh, economically challenged person or a, pers a racialized minority living in small apartments, um, or maybe you had to go outside and you were doing drugs outside, it's more likely that you'd be caught by police and charged. Also because of racial biases in police forces, um, these drug laws were sort of selectively enforced against certain groups, especially African Americans um, and Latinx people. Um, and, and so we generally realized after a little while that this war on drugs was having really disastrous impacts, especially on marginalized communities um, with incarceration rates uh, being very, very high in those communities. Um, as a result, uh, the dominant frame, the social constructions around drug use began to change really in the late 90s uh, and throughout the 2000s um, and are still changing today, uh, as we saw with the legalization of marijuana becoming popular. Um, but even before that, um, a lot of jurisdictions were uh, trying to policies like decriminalizing drugs. So in Portugal, for example, uh, all drugs, including hard drugs, are decriminalized. We're sort of moving a bit more in that direction. Um, and the social construction, the, or the, our ideas surrounding these policies are changing in that we're starting to see uh, drug users more within a sort of public health framework. Um, so these are people who uh, are addicted, they're, they are sick, um, and they need support, not necessarily to be thrown behind bars for no reason. Um, so this is an example of a social construction of policy design um, that's shifted and shifted in a positive way. Another example of that uh, is sex work. Uh, so sex work for a long time uh, was criminalized, right? So we're talking about prostitution. Um, and uh, sex workers were presented by, presented by politicians as morally bankrupt people, fallen women, um, people who used uh, those you know, services who, cho who chose to purchase sex uh, were framed as perverts, um, 
you know, these uh, dark seedy men in trench coats. Um, and, and this really informed the way that policymakers approached the issue. And once again, it was heavily criminalized. Uh, women were thrown in jail for engaging in prostitution. Um, men less often were thrown in jail for purchasing uh, prostitutes, uh, purchasing services from prostitutes. Um, but then once again, we've started to see a shift in views. Uh, this, like many things, started in Europe. Um, and we saw this, this view shift towards seeing women who were engaged in uh, the sex trade, who were in sex work, uh, they were then seen as victims of exploitation. Uh, so we saw a shift in the, in the laws where laws then would penalize people purchasing sex, uh, sex services from sex workers um, and, and sort of move away uh, from criminalizing uh, the sex workers themselves, um, although they still fell afoul of the law in, in many ways. Um, and finally, we're seeing things shift a little bit more to seeing sex workers instead as empowered women um, sex work as a legitimate profession, um, and we're seeing more and more jurisdictions uh, becoming more lenient on prostitution or moving towards legalizing it, at least in the West. So this is another example of a social construction around a policy design, right? So we saw the criminalization of sex work for a long time, um, though this uh, social construction is beginning to shift. All right, uh, so that's it for the, the main material of the lesson this week. Um, now I want to move on to talk about our logical fallacy of the week. Uh, I hope you are enjoying these logical fallacies. I know I have a lot of fun with them um, and students in the past have really enjoyed them. Um, once again, uh, logical fallacies are in many ways a product of cognitive biases, right? Uh, as we know, logical fallacies are weak arguments um, and we've categorized them into different groups uh, so that we can hopefully become better at arguing and also figure out when people are using logical fallacies against this and call them out on it because it's super fun. All right, so the logical fallacy of the week this week is the ad hominem attack. Um, so an ad hominem attack is when you attack a person instead of attacking that person's argument. Um, so if we look at an example, uh, Anouk says uh, e-cigarettes are, are still bad for you. They have nicotine. Tim responds saying, you've lied before. How can we trust anything you say? Right, so in this case, Tim isn't necessarily attacking Anouk's argument. Uh, he's instead attacking her moral character. And we see this all the time in the news, the ad hominem attacks. Politicians love this uh, because it's a, you know, tends to be a really effective strategy for appealing to your base. Um, so, for example, uh, Donald Trump, I'm sorry to use Donald Trump a lot. I know that the whole um, dump on Trump bandwagon is, is kind of old, especially now that he's not the president anymore. Uh, but it's just too easy. He uses too many logical fallacies. I can't help myself. Uh, so a classic example of an, of an ad hominem attack uh, was Donald Trump's 2016 attack on Hillary Clinton, uh, where he tried to label her a nasty woman. Um, this was a highly sexist, uh, really sort of, awful strategy on his part, but it is a classic example of an ad hominem attack. Um, on the other side of the spe political spectrum, um, a lot of people, uh, you know, will use ad hominem attacks on the internet. You'll see them. I, I bet that you could take any YouTube video on politics, look at the comments, and within the first five or six comments, find an ad hominem attack. Um, and Ben Shapiro is often a favorite target um, from people on the left. Um, and whether or not you agree with Ben Shapiro's ideas, many of which are a bit controversial, he's probably not a Nazi. But he gets called not a Nazi a lot, even though he's an Orthodox Jewish man, um, which is not, not cool. 
Uh, another example, if we think back to the 2019 election, right? It seems like ages ago now, um, as anything that happened before the pandemic sort of does. Uh, but uh, we saw a lot of ad hominem attacks taking place uh, in that election. So if we look, uh, the conservatives, right, they tried to label uh, Trudeau as, you know, not living up to all of the promises that he made. So they tried, they used this, this campaign strategy, Justin Trudeau, not as advertised. Um, on the other end, uh, the Liberals tried to associate uh, Andrew Scheer with Doug Ford, as you can see in this ad here, picturing them, photoshopping them together. Um, and they attacked uh, Andrew Scheer's weakness and how his weakness will cost you. They even made a website, scheerweakness.ca. Um, so we can see ad hominem attacks alive and well in politics, unfortunately, even though they are a logical fallacy. All right, uh, you've made it to the end of this lecture. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, as a reward for listening to the entire thing, um, I'm just going to make a note for next week's readings. Uh, we have Kearney Chapter 6, Structures, Environments, and Complex Systems. And please note that for this week's readings, you only have to read up to page 100. Don't worry about the rest of the chapter after page 100. Just read the chapter up to page 100. Don't worry about the rest. There you go. Uh, so if you made it through to the end of the lecture, you'll get that helpful hint, and you won't have to waste time doing readings that you don't have to worry about. So booyah, it's a win-win. Thanks everybody for your attention today, um, and uh, I hope you've been enjoying the course so far, and I'm looking forward to discussing all of this with you in tutorial at our normal time, Tuesdays at 2.30. Uh, thanks so much, and have a great day. Thank you.